Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 4. Now we're getting into the really good meat part of Romans. The part that talks about imputed righteousness. Chapter 4. So last week he talked about a righteousness which is freely given by faith. And he alluded to it being a righteousness that was predicted in the Old Testament. One that was not by works. He talked about how that whether one was circumcised or not circumcised, that that righteousness was available by faith without respect of persons. Now this would have upset a Jew terribly to think that after they had spent their whole life laboring, keeping the law, keeping the commandments, to come to the end of life and find out that a Gentile who had not spent his life keeping the law could simply, by believing, enter into a righteousness that was superior to the law. That would just gall them. In fact, Jesus told a parable similar to that. He talked about a man who hired servants to go out in his field and work. And he said, I'll give you a penny a day. They went out and they worked all day long. And uh, then there was some who, at noontime, he went out and he hired them, said, I'll pay you what's, what you got coming. And then about three in the afternoon, he saw he wasn't going to get the job done. He hired some more, said, I'll pay you what you, what, what you deserve. And then about five in the evening, an hour before quitting time, he realized he needed a little help. So he picked up a couple more guys and he hired them, told them he'd pay them fair wages. When it came time to pay them, the man that had worked all day long was put off until last to be paid. And he paid the man who only worked an hour, paid him a penny. In fact, that was the same amount he'd promised to pay the man who worked all day long. Then the man who worked a couple hours, he paid him a penny also. And then the man who'd worked six hours got a penny. Finally came to the man who worked all day and paid him the same penny. And the man got upset and said, that's not fair, that's not right. Here, I've labored in the heat and the sun all day long, and you give me the same price as the guy who comes in at the last hour and works. And the master said, it's mine, I'll do with it as I please. Now, here God has called out the Jewish people, given them the law and the commandments, and for years they have labored to keep those commandments. And now suddenly Paul comes along and tells them, yes, I know you've worked through the heat of the day. I know you've been persecuted to maintain the integrity of this law. I know that you've labored for long hours. I know that you've fought and, and killed and your own have been killed. And you've been carried into captivity because of this law. I know God has brought judgments on you and he's brought blessings. I know that during this time the Gentiles have been in idolatry and fornication and unbelief and worshiping multiple gods that were no gods at all. And now Paul comes along and says that all a Gentile needs to do, an uncircumcised Gentile who doesn't know the law, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he be counted as if he were perfectly righteous before God. And a Jew just cannot swallow that. That's just too hard for him to believe. Now, you remember how the Jews were always pointing back to Moses or back to Abraham? They said to Jesus one time, well, we have Abraham to our father. And Jesus said that God is able to raise up these stones, children unto Abraham. So he starts off chapter 4. He says, what shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? He is anticipating that they're going to fall back upon Abraham as their spiritual father. And they're going to say, we don't need your Jesus. We don't need your Gentile religion because we have Abraham. He says, okay, let's examine Abraham and find out what he says about this righteousness, which is by faith. Let's go back into your Old Testament scripture and see what it taught. So he says, what has he found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Now, he simply made an obvious statement. He has said that if Abraham got right with God by his works, then Abraham could brag. That's all he said. 
He said that if Abraham got saved by living good, by obeying commandments, then Abraham could brag before God. Abraham could get to heaven. He could say, look, the reason I'm in heaven and you're not here is because I was willing to sacrifice my son on the altar. I took the knife, I took the wood, I went up on top of the mountain, I bound my son, and I obeyed God, even though I didn't understand. I laid him on the altar, and that's why God called me a righteous man. Or he could say, listen, when I didn't have any children, I was bar- my wife was barren, and I reached past the age of producing seed. He said, I believed God when no one else would. And so God counted me as righteous. Abraham could say, look, I left my kinfolk, my country, my home, and I followed God into a land I didn't know where I was going. I left idolatry. I quit worshiping multiple gods, and I began to believe in one true God. And so God saw in me this repentance. God saw this pure heart in me, and God counted me as one of his. Now, if that were the case, if God in fact did justify Abraham because of the things that Abraham did, even if he was doing them in response to God's grace, even if he was doing them in response to God's commandments, even if he's walking by faith, if he worked a work by faith, if he obeyed a work by faith, and that won him a place in the heart and favor of God, then Abraham could brag. Now, he could do it humbly, but he could brag. A sinner could say, oh, I don't know why I'm being cast into hell. And Abraham could say, you're being cast into hell because when God spoke to you and told you to leave your country and your kinfolk and your religion, you wouldn't do it. Well, Abraham, how are you getting in? I obeyed God. I did what he told me to do. And Abraham could brag. They could say to Abraham, Abraham, how is it that God's accepted you? He said, well, when God told me I was going to have a child, I believed him. And obeyed God. And Abraham could have bragged. Now, the devout Jews, much like the Amish that live around us here, were very repulsed by the whole concept of pride. In fact, it was part of their religion to maintain humility. And they went to great lengths to maintain that appearance of humility. Everything that they said was said in such a way as to attempt to not come across as prideful. In fact, if there was one thing that a Jew was really proud of, it was his humility. He worked on it harder than anything else. So the argument that Paul is presenting is, look, this gospel is superior to the law because it rules out the possibility of pride and bragging. The law leaves the possibility of pride The gospel does not leave any place for boasting of your obedience. The law does. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Now, what does it mean, not before God? You see, if Abraham were justified by his works, then he could brag, but he couldn't do it in God's presence. You know, if you're going to brag, that's the last place you want to do it. In God's presence. God knows our heart. He knows better, doesn't he? For what saith the scripture? Now what does the Old Testament scripture concerning Abraham? What does it say? By the way, let's uh, throw in a little commercial here. What saith the scripture? Now, the Bible says all 
hear me now, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible does not say all Scripture was given as if the act of the first and original act of giving it was done in the state of inspiration. He said all Scripture is present tense. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Scripture is in a process of being given. Now, when Jesus refers to Scripture, says to them, search the Scripture, he's not referring to the original autographs that were first given. He's referring to copies of Scripture. In fact, when Jesus quotes stuff in the Greek or the Aramaic language, he's already working in a language different from the one it was given in. So when he calls it Scripture, he's referring to a translation into a different language as Scripture. So when he says all Scripture is given, he's not referring to original autographs. He's referring to translations that they hold in their day and time. So when he says, what saith the scripture, he's not referring back to anything original. He's referring back to that which they've received to that point right there in history. All scripture, what saith the scripture? It says this, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, he's hit those Jews right between the eyes, especially if it was a scribe there who prided himself in the scripture. He said the scripture says, and he quotes, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness now that word counted uh, the Greek word there is legosomai of course it was originally uh, said in Hebrew but the Greek word there legosomai is also translated uh, like impute, reckoned accounted, counted it all means that God calls something different from what it was in other words God counted it as if it were when in fact it was not. Actually, this is a bookkeeping word to account or to impute. Let's say we, in our situation where we've got some missionaries. Say we've got a missionary who is totally depleted of funds. There's nothing in his account. And he needs airplane fare. And so we say, listen, let's just take the money out of the general account and let's put it in the missionary's account and let's say that he has $2,000. And so we will wire to his bank in overseas, we will wire $2,000. So what we did is we imputed money to his account. We accounted it as his. We then write him and say, listen, you can write checks now, or you can use your credit card on that $2,000 and so he goes back and he says, I now have $2,000. They say, how do you know? He says, well, they accounted it to me. Do you believe that? I reckon it's true, he says. So he has reckoned on that which we have accounted to him. So that's the way the word account or reckon or impute. It's not a religious word. It's a common word still used today. And so he says, what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. This is not saying that Abraham's faith was a deposit of righteousness, as if it were one dollar on a hundred. This is not saying that Abraham's faith had the quality or the character of righteousness so that God called a little bit of righteousness a whole lot of righteousness. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying God counted 
that little bit of faith as if it were in the place of as if it were righteousness. God's calling it something that it's not. You see, faith is not peculiar to the Christian. Everyone exercises faith all day long. When you drive through traffic, you're exercising faith. When you touch a light switch standing on the floor, you're exercising faith. When you get in a bathtub and turn on the water, you're exercising faith. When you go out to eat, and uh, especially in these fast food joints, and you eat something someone else prepared, you're certainly exercising faith. Every time you go through a salad bar somewhere and pick up salad and put it on your plate and eat it just like it was organically grown and well-washed and properly handled and all fresh, you're exercising faith when you eat that. And all of life is full of faith. But you see, faith does not require any character. It does not require any character to exercise faith. Your car breaks down, you call on the cell phone, you say, well, you come get me. He says, I'll be there in an hour. Now, you know it's really going to be an hour, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, but you do figure he's going to be there before noon comes around. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. And so somebody stops by and says, can I help you? A friend of yours. You say, no, that's all right. I've got a man coming to help me. And so you turn down your friend picking you up on that cold morning because you have faith that that man's going to do what he said he was going to do. You're believing in his words, trusting his word. That's faith, see. So it doesn't require any special quality of soul to exercise faith. So when Abraham believed God, he was not being righteous in believing God. He was simply taking the word of someone who'd proven himself to be worthy when he spoke. He was taking the word of someone whose word had counted in times past. And Abraham says, well, if God says it, then I know it's going to be true. And Abraham simply believed God. Now, then he goes on to say, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now, that word reckoned is the same as the word counted. That's a different shade of meaning here. But to him that worketh, that is, works of righteousness, is the reward, that reward being eternal life, salvation, acceptance before God. To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if you come to my house and I say to you, if you will go out there and plow that field, I will give you $15 an hour. So you go out and you work three hours. So I owe you $45. So I take my calculator and I multiply three times 15 and I count the sums. And I come up with a sum of $45. I say, okay, I'm going to write that down in the book today. Tomorrow you come back and you disk. And so tomorrow you come back and you're able to disk in only two hours. So I put that in my little book of accounting. So you now have $30 on top of the $45. And so I have imputed that sum there in the book. I've counted it as so. And you go home and you say to your wife, guess how much money I've made. I've made 45, 55, 65, $75. How do you know you've made $75? Well, because Mike Pearl has counted it. It's in his book. He's reckoned it to me. It's there. And so the man is reckoning on it. He says, tell you what, go ahead and write that check to pay the light, gas, and water bill because uh, I will go back tomorrow and finish and get paid and we'll be able to get it in the bank 
before it's cashed. So the man is reckoning on, counting on that sum that has been imputed to him, though he's not yet seen or touched it or handled it. He's exercising faith in what I've said. He's acting on it. You see that? That basically, in the natural, is what Abraham's doing. God has said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Abraham goes to Sarah and says, Sarah, we're going to have a whole bunch of people named after us. Sarah, we're going to be the head of a great clan of people. Uh, Abraham, we've been married now for many years and I've never been able to have a baby. Oh, but you are going to have one. Uh, how do you know? It's written down in God's book, he told me. He said that we're going to be the head of a great nation. Well, 25 years passed. 25 years passed before God fulfilled his promises to Abraham. Now he says, To him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if you come to me after working three days, and you've now earned your $100, say, and uh, you look at the books, and I look at the books, I say, okay, I'm going to pay you your $100. Uh, I guess you're really thankful for, for this, huh? Well, I, I work for it. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's really gracious of me to give you this. Well, no, not really. You owe it to me. I work for it. Uh, I'd like for you to show a little humility when I pay you, you know, a little thankfulness, a little appreciation. What for? Uh, the ground was harder than I thought it was. And, and, uh, you didn't feed me. And <laughs> just go ahead and pay me. I've got to go down and put this thing in the bank. I owe the man a debt. I'm in his debt now. He's not in my debt. I'm in his. He did something to me. I owe him some money. I pay. No grace in that. Now, on the other hand, if the man is over here and he, they're fixing to foreclose on him or kick him out of his house, his rent's due. It's uh, one of the upper class houses here in the community and he's paying $60 a month. So I go by to him and I say, look, I know they're fixing to foreclose on you. You don't have any groceries. He said, here, let me give you 100 bucks. I won't just give this to you. I want you to go pay your rent and get you some groceries. He says, well, I sure do. Thank you, man. I was fixing to get kicked right out of my ear. I sure do appreciate it. And he's thankful now. See, that's grace. The other one was debt. Now, if I said to him, I'm going to give you this hundred bucks here, I want to just give it to you. He said, look, I really do appreciate it. I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm, I'm going to come and clean up your front yard to pay for this. I said, well, look, my front yard wouldn't take ten minutes to clean up. I'll clean up myself. He said, no, I just can't take anything free. I'm going to come clean your yard up. And I, I said, well, really, I just, I just soon you show a whole lot of gratitude. That's right. Uh, you know, the little bit of yard, that won't mean anything to me. Just, just, take, the, just take the money and, and, you know, be thankful for it. And I'll be satisfied. That's all I want. He says, well, I really, I just, unless I, I can't take anything unless I work for it. I'm just not that kind of person. I mean, I'm just the kind of person that's got to pay his debt. So I'm going to come clean your yard up. And I jerk my $100 back and I say, here, here's $5 for the cleanup job in the yard. Put the money back in my pocket. You say, why? Because he's trying to mix works with my grace. And I just don't appreciate it. <laughs> I wanted to show grace, and he's trying to turn my grace into works. He said, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Now, if you get your salvation by any amount of works, then you didn't get it by grace. And if you get it by grace, then you didn't get it by any amount of works. One cancels out the other. They're mutually exclusive. 
It tells us later in the book of Romans that if it's by grace, it's no more by works. And if it's by works, it's no more by grace. Otherwise, he says work is no more work and grace is no more grace. It's got to be one or the other. Now he says it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now he's given two conditions, basically. They're really one, but it's twofold. Two sides to it. To have righteousness imputed to you. The first one is working not. And the second one is believing. Now the reason he states it this way, worketh not but believeth, is because the quality of believing that he's talking about requires no work at all. Any work that you would attempt to offer is a statement that you don't believe. You see, the provision is so thorough it's so complete. It's so free. It's so much based on grace. It's so much the gift of God that any work whatsoever added to this would destroy the nature of the gift. So he says, listen, I want to give it to you, but it requires that you work not. I remember one time I was at the mall selling my paintings and right at the end of the day, there was this uh, each day for about a week there, there was this fellow came by and stood and looked at my paintings as everyone was leaving. And then when the shops closed down, this little lady working there in a pizza place would come out and they'd hold hands and walk off. Uh, just as the mall was closing down, the lights were going out. She worked there, a little waitress. And so he kept looking at this one particular painting, cost $18.95. And so uh, one day I said to him, I said, do you like that painting? He said, yeah, I really do. And uh, I said, um, well, uh, I said, uh, what's this little lady over here to you? He said, we're getting married uh, January the 1st. I, I said, well, that's really nice. That's really nice. I said, y'all got your house? He said, yeah, we got one rented. And I said, well, that, that'd look good on the wall, wouldn't it? He said, yeah, it would. I said, won't you buy it for her for Christmas, you know? He said, <laughs> he said no. I said, we have to save everything we can get. You know, we, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I said, well, okay. So uh, the night before Christmas there, I was sitting there counting up four or $5,000 I'd made, you know? And I looked over at him, and he's about to pick his little girl up. And I went over, and I got that painting off the wall, and uh, I handed it to him. I said, here, I want to give you this as a wedding present for you and the little lady. He said, oh, you can't do that. I said, look, man, I own this place. I can do anything I want to do with it. I said, I'm going to give it to you. And uh, he said, oh, said, uh, uh, no, I just, uh, I said, listen, it's yours. It's a gift. Okay. He said, okay, okay. So he walks over, and I'm, I'm counting money, and I see him talking to her and she her eyes light up and they're both looking at it you know and they and so as they're walking out they walk by and they come up to the counter where I am and he puts a handful of change on my counter I think it was like five dollars and 23 cents it was her tips for the evening he said I just want to give you this for the painting I said what is that he said well that's five dollars and 33 cents I said where'd that come from he said well that's her tips for the evening I said, what do you want to do with that? He said, well, I want to pay you for the painting. So I got my calculator out, and I pulled it over there, and I went through it like that, and I added the sales tax to it, and I said, that'll be $19.95. He looked kind of shocked. I said, you, you said you wanted to pay for the painting, didn't you? He said, yeah. I said, it's $19.95. I said, otherwise, I want to give it to you, and if I give it to you, it's free. And he looked kind of dumbfounded. I said, look, fella, I said, I'm fixing to go home and I'm going to walk in. I'm going to, first thing I'm going to tell my wife, I'm not going to tell her that I made $8,000 this evening. I'm going to tell her that I gave this little couple 
an $18.95 painting as a Christmas present. And she's going to be so proud of me. And I'm going to feel so good about myself. <laughs> I said, now, if I take your $5.33 or whatever it was, and I go home and I say, uh, well, uh, I sold that $18.95 painting for $5.33. She said, you, that's the dumbest deal you've made all year. What's, what's wrong with you? Are you slipping? I said, now look, it's either free or you pay the price. There's no in-between. And I shoved the money off the counter. My hand handed it back to her. She dropped it in her little dress there, a little pouch she had in the front and said, thank you. And I said, you're welcome. And smiled and they walked off. Now you see what they were trying to do? Do you see how they were insulting my grace? That was not a $5.36 painting or whatever it was. <laughs> I know I keep changing. I can't remember what it was. Somewhere around $5. That was not a $5.33 painting. That was an $18.95 painting. And to accept that would be to demean not only the value of my painting, but d demean my own person in giving it. Now God says, I'm going to die on the cross and pay for your sins. And I'm going to give you the free gift of salvation. You say, Lord, I'm just so thankful for that. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church to pay for it. <laughs> God, I'm going to get baptized to pay for it. God, I'm going to read my Bible and just do the best I can to deserve this salvation. God will reach down and grab it and jerk it back. Say, well, you just work for it. Here's the Ten Commandments. This is what it takes. And you say, well, Lord, I don't think I keep the Ten Commandments. And the Lord will take the Ten Commandments back and hand you the grace back, the salvation. Say, then here's the free salvation. What you want? You won't take it free at no charge, at no price, or you're going to work for it. Make up your mind. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. All God wants is thanksgiving. All he wants is love and praise. All he wants is appreciation. Not selfishly like I did. But he wants it because it's good for you to give it. He wants it because it's good for your soul to be in that kind of relationship to Almighty God. Especially seeing where you've come from, which is a place of sin and rebellion, place of pride and arrogance, place of self-sufficiency, wickedness and lust. And God just wants to give you the free gift. So he says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth. Justifieth. This word justification is more, as we said last week, than just being innocent. This justification is having gone to court and being proven to be without fault or blame. He justifieth the ungodly. Now what's an ungodly person? An ungodly person is a person who's not like God in character, not like God in heart and spirit. Ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. He's called Abraham to the witness stand to testify on behalf of this gospel. Now he's going to reach out and call David, the greatest king of Israel, to testify. He says, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. He said, David described, he gave us a description of what it's like to receive this imputed righteousness. 
He said he described the blessedness, that state of being blessed, that state of being complete, fully rich with the goodness of God. He describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Without works. You see, it's not that our works, our good works are evil that God rejects them. It's not that our good works are not good works. It's not that God doesn't like good works. It's just that God has designed that good works should be the fruit of our relationship to him, not the cause of it. When we think that we're going to precipitate God's favor by our works, then we have not understood our own depravity. The law has not done its work properly. The law is there to do what Paul did through the first three chapters, which he says, prove all under sin. There's none good, no, not one. They're all together become an unclean thing. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he says, David describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, here's what he said, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. David said that is a wonderful state. Now when he said that, he's not talking about a doctrinal satisfaction. He's talking about a release that he experienced in his soul after his sin. He's talking about the joy that he has in knowing that he's forgiven. That he's in a state of blessedness before God. He said, bless the man whose iniquities are forgiven. You know, you have got to see your iniquities to experience that blessedness. Jesus said that to whom much is forgiven, the same loveth much. The opposite of that would be true. If you hadn't been forgiven of much, you wouldn't love much. And, you know, it's not that some of us have more sin than others. It's just that in this world, there's some whose sins are more manifest socially than others. And so they feel the sense of ostracization. They feel the sense of shame because it is directed at them by the majority of society. And so they feel it. They feel their inability to function and work among their fellow men because they've been cut out and singled out and pointed to and stigmatized by their sinfulness. But in fact, all of us are sinful enough that if we understood our heart, the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and the man cannot know it. Paul said, I wouldn't have known if the law hadn't come and said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known my lust. And Paul, a religious Jew, And so the law comes to expose our sinfulness, show us our depravity, and give us an appreciation for the Lord Jesus. Blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So he said, blessed is the man when the Lord will not take that man's sin and add it up in his column of deficits. In other words, It's like someone spending money, but the bank is not subtracting that from the total account. In fact, someone is overspent, but the bank takes that column that they have spent and sets it aside and doesn't impute it to their account. So they still show account full of money after having spent it. You and I have spent up our souls in sin, and yet God is not imputing our sin to us. Why? 
because God took the deficits. He took what we did, he took what we spent, and he put it in Jesus' column. And Jesus took our sin and died for it as if it were his. He suffered the loss of what we spent, the wild seeds that we sowed in this life. Instead of us reaping, he has reaped on the cross the payment for our sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon thee. He's getting back full circle. Upon the circumcision only. Is this righteousness that David spoke of that Abraham had imputed to him? Is this righteousness only for circumcised people? Or upon the uncircumcision also? Now the Jew was quite ready to say, no, it's just for the law-keeping Jews. He says, for we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Now then he asked the question, he asked this question or to answer his question, which question was, is this just for Jews, circumcised Jews, or is it also for Gentiles? He answers his question by asking another question, how was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision. When did Abraham have this righteousness reckoned to him? Was it before he got circumcised or after he got circumcised? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. If you remember, God called Abraham out when he was 75 years old. And God told Abraham several times during that wandering that he was going to be the father of a great nation. And when God told Abraham that the first time, and Abraham believed it, God said, Abraham, I have imputed righteousness to you because you believe that you're going to be the father of a great nation. See, Abraham didn't believe on Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't believe his sins were forgiven. All Abraham believed was that he was going to have a baby by a woman, his wife, that was barren. That's all he believed. And God said, Abraham, because you have faith in me, I'm going to call that righteousness a full measure. Now, Abraham was not yet circumcised. In fact, Abraham went on and went through Hagar, tried to produce a child, produced one that was a problem, still is to this day. And uh, he piddled around there for 25 years. And finally, when he loses his ability to produce seed, they're both barren, so to speak, now. They're both dead in their capacity to produce seed. Then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself. Circumcise your son. Remember that? So Abraham goes out and circumcises himself. And the next year, Abraham has that promised child. But now it was 15 years earlier that God told Abraham, I have counted this to you for righteousness. Abraham had been called righteous for 15 years before his wife gave birth to Isaac. So when, when was he counted as righteous? Circumcision or uncircumcision? The answer is uncircumcision. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Abraham a Jew? Of course not. Abraham was not a Jew. The word Jew comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons. So it was oh, five, six hundred years later before there were any a tribe of Judah. There was a family of Judah within a couple hundred years, but there was several years before there was a tribe of Judah, and then it was several hundred more years before they were called Jews. And so Abraham was a Gentile. 
fact, the Bible tells us he was a Syrian, like old Tom back there. And so, Abraham was not Jewish. Was Abraham under the Mosaic law? No. Abraham didn't follow Moses. Abraham didn't keep a Sabbath. So here was a man who's a Gentile, who doesn't keep a Sabbath, who doesn't have Moses' law, and he's not circumcised. You can't get any more Gentilish than that. Can't get any more non-Jewish than that. And God called that Gentile, uncircumcised, non-law-keeping man righteous. Hundreds of years before there was a law given. So it was a Gentile that was declared righteous, not a Jew. And it was a Gentile not under any legal system that was declared righteous. So he's building a very good case here. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or uncircumcision? No, uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision. That sign is like a wonder. It's the same word translated wonder. It's something that demonstrates or reveals a reality. It's like a signpost. A sign that's the name of the street. You can't go anywhere on that sign. It just tells you that's the name of the street. It's a sign there. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal. A seal is something you place after the fact. It's an attestation to a document. It verifies the validity of something. A seal of the what? Righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. That is, he had the righteousness of faith when he was still in uncircumcised state. And the circumcision was a sign, a seal, a testimony that that righteousness was already there. So Abraham's circumcision followed the gift of righteousness and therefore could not be the cause of the righteousness. It could not be the occasion of the righteousness. So that means that the gift of righteousness is independent of circumcision. He just proved that irrefutably from Scripture to any Jew. That's beyond question. He proved that the gift of righteousness to Abraham had nothing to do with the giving of circumcision. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe. This was done that he would be the father of all them that believe. Now, that would include Jew and Gentile, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. He's just established a way of linking the Gentile church to Abraham. He's saying that Abraham can be the father of all that believe, including the uncircumcised, because he was justified before he was circumcised. You see his argument here? It's flowing real nice. The father of all them which believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. He's just proven the Gentile has a place in the faith of Abraham. And the father of circumcision to them which are not of the circumcision only, so that he says Abraham is a father, whether of Jew or Gentile, but also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. So he says anyone who shares the kind of faith that Abraham had is a recipient of this righteousness that is even apart from circumcision. For the promise that he should be heir of the world, that heir of the world is through Isaac, his seed, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. So he's added another dimension but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise of none effect, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, then the promise might be sure. Now what's he said? He's arguing this. Now the law was not given until many hundreds of years after circumcision. So if Abraham was made righteous before the giving of the law, then the giving of the law, again, cannot be the cause or the occasion of the imputed righteousness. So he's established that imputed righteousness is not only independent of circumcision, it's also independent of the Mosaic system. In other words, independent of Judaism. So he's establishing that a Gentile can be grafted in, not to the law, grafted in, not to circumcision, but grafted in before both of those, be grafted into the root, Abraham, and have Abraham as father of his faith long before the law is given without circumcision. The people talk about the church inheriting the promises God gave to the Jews. And they base it on this scripture and one or two others. It's the idea that we are the spiritual Israel. People talk about us being the spiritual Israel. Amillennialism is based on that concept. Most of you churches, they're running after that. They're all trying to pretend to be Jewish. And they're all running around with little banners hanging on the walls with Jewish colors and doing Jewish songs and Jewish jingles and getting back into the feast days and bowing down to Jews like they were holy or something. I can say that because I'm of Jewish descent, Jewish blood. So I, I, can, I can rake them, all right? They're doing all that idolizing Judaism. Listen, they didn't go back far enough. Need to go back a little before that. Need to go back to a Gentile named Abraham. Because the church, having Abraham as spiritual father, have missed out on the law. The law is no part of it. Nor are the promises God gave to the Jews. That belongs to them and them alone, and it came after the imputed righteousness. There's no such thing as a spiritual Jew unless you're talking about a bloodline descendant of the tribe of Judah, or more generally of Jacob. A bloodline descendant that worships Jehovah God through Jesus Christ, that'd be a spiritual Jew. In other words, to get fried potatoes, you've got to start out with potatoes. You can't start out with tofu and get fried potatoes. And to have a spiritual Jew, you've got to start off with a Jew. Now, if you become spiritually minded, you are not a Jew. You're not of Israel. You'll never be. You are a descendant of Abraham by faith. You have Father Abraham as your father, and that is the extent of your relationship to the patriarchs. Now, it's amazing to me that something this simple, this plain, this well-delineated could be taken so wrongly as it is in our day and age. But it certainly is. Verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. Why would faith be made void? Because the law failed to deliver so if righteousness by faith is linked to the law, then it failed when the law failed. And the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. He said the law did not bring life. He's already proven the law brought wrath. So if righteousness is linked to the law, then it has failed. For where no law is, there's no transgression. 
Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. See, the law is not grace. Abraham was grace. So he said it's by faith, just like Abraham, that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Now, what is the seed? Do you remember him saying to Abraham that he'd multiply his seed as the sand on the seashore innumerable? Now, I want you to turn to a passage in the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to show you something that has been looked over. Hebrews chapter 6. He told Abraham that he's going to multiply his seed as the sand on the seashore innumerable, and that through him he would bless the nations. The Bible speaks of us receiving the blessings of Abraham. Now he says, verse 12, Hebrews 6, 12, that ye might not be slothful followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, is that promises singular or plural in your Bible? If you have a holy Bible, it's plural. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, singular, not plural. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable things, two immutable things in which it was impossible to God lie. He said there was two things God said to Abraham. In fact, there were two promises to Abraham. Abraham received one promise, but there was two made. Look in chapter 7, verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises, plural. Abraham received promises. There were two immutable things in those promises. And Abraham received the promise, singular, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, the two immutable things have to be statements God made. Because it's impossible for God to lie. There cannot be anything other than the words that fell from God's mouth. Two immutable commandments, two immutable statements. Those two immutable things were, and if you go back and look at the several times the promises were given in Genesis, we won't do it now. He divides it into two promises each time. And sometimes it's just one promise, but in I think about five cases, it's two promises. It's this, Abraham... I will multiply your seed as the sand on the seashore, innumerable, and make you the head of a great nation. That's promise one. Promise two, and through your seed, I will bless the whole world. Promise two. Promise one again, Abraham, you're going to have a child. You're going to have lots of kids. Your kids are going to have kids. You're going to become a great nation and spread over the whole earth. That's promise one. Promise two, through your seed, the whole world is going to be blessed. Promise two. Now Abraham received one promise. That is, he received a child to be the head of that great nation. That's the promise he received. Abraham did not receive the promise that through him the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
Now that didn't take place until the seed, the book of Galatians talks about that seed which should come. It said which seed is, what did it say? Christ. Now we know the other seed that would multiply was Isaac. But through the seed that would bless the whole world was Jesus Christ, which came of the lineage of Isaac. I mean, he came down through the Jewish nation. And he said that seed is Christ. It says which seed we are. We become Christ's seed when we're baptized into his body. So we become part of Christ, part of his body, and thus we are blessed from Abraham. The whole world is blessed through Abraham, through entering into the promise God gave to Abraham, which promise was fulfilled in Christ and given to us when we were baptized into Christ and made part of his body and were born again. So yes, the church has received the blessings from Abraham and are children of Abraham by faith, one side of the promise. The second side belongs to the Jews and to the blood nation alone. Now, if you fail to see there's two promises, you end up with a lot of problems. You've got two different groups of people trying to inherit the same promise in two different dispensation time frames. All right, back to Romans. Romans chapter 4. Verse 16, therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. He's showing you here there's two different groups. Who is the father of us all? That is, Abraham's the father of us all by faith. As it is written, I've made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. Now the dead God quickened was Abraham and Sarah. It said Abraham considered not his own body now dead. So he quickened the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were in the original context. God called Abraham the father of a great nation when he was not. He believed it. God calls us righteous when we're not and we believe it. Uh, Calls him alive when in fact he was dead. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. That is, Abraham, when he looked at Sarah, all shriveled up there, and after all those years not having a child, there was no hope in her. And then finally his own body stopped producing seed, and there was no hope in him. So against that hope, he believed in the hope that God gave him by his words, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith... He was weak in everything else, but not faith. He considered not his own body now dead. It was dead, but he didn't consider it to be dead. In other words, when he got to weighing the possibilities, he didn't include the factor that his body wouldn't produce seed. That didn't count because he was weighing against the Word of God, and the Word of God outweighed the obvious, his dead body. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So that's the dead thing God revived. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Now at 100 years old, he was probably staggering at everything else, but he was not staggering at the promise of God. He believed God, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. That was faith. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. You see, Abraham's faith was not in his own faith. He wasn't believing in his ability to believe. He wasn't believing that his faith was going to initiate anything. 
Abraham was believing that God had given him a promise that was not conditional. That promise, all of the means to fulfill that promise was within God himself. So Abraham believed that what he promised, he was able to perform. God was able to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So because Abraham believed that way, God counted for righteousness. Now, it was not in written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him. In other words, he said, God didn't write that down just for Abraham, but to us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. So he said, God has given this record of imputed righteousness, not for Abraham's sake, but for the sake of us, so that we can see there's a pattern here that Jesus Christ has follows, wherein you and I have righteousness imputed to us, just like Abraham did. Who was delivered, that is Jesus Christ, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. He was delivered as a criminal is delivered to the executioner. He was delivered for our offenses. And he was raised again for our justification. Now he separates Christ's death from his resurrection in terms of its application to our need. He says he was delivered on the cross to pay for offenses. But he was raised again for our justification. You see, when Christ died, that paid for your sin, but it didn't make you a son of God. If you were to run into a rich man's limo and owe $137,000 to fix it, and you didn't come up with the money, and there was a lawsuit, and you are going to lose everything. And then the man looks down on you and has grace in the courtroom, and you're being charged with the, paying the debt. And he says, look, said, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pay the debt myself. The court's already ruled it's got to be paid. He writes out a check to, him, to his own account, and he gives it to the court. The court is satisfied. The debt's paid on your behalf. Now, he walks off and leaves you. You're still, you're still a poor man. You're, you're still you. That didn't establish any relationship with the man. That just forgave the debt. If Jesus Christ had come and died on the cross for your sins, he'd have gotten down off the cross and he said, okay, your sins are paid for. See what you can do with the rest of your life. See what you can do with your life now. Let's see if you can keep the law. Here's the commandments. You're still under obligation to keep them. Go ahead and do the best you can. I'll check you out at the end of life. The end of life, he could say, yeah, you did pretty good. Uh, I hope you can hold this whole world together. I'm leaving. I hope you can keep it from getting hit by a meteorite. And I hope you can keep yourself from disease and sickness. And you're all going to die anyhow. And he could walk off. I mean, that. so, yeah, you're forgiven. So what? Still live on planet Earth. Still subject to disease, death, and dying. You see, just because he died for you and paid your sin, that didn't make you a son of God. That didn't give you a new body. That it's paid the debt. But when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and you were raised with him, that took you out of the old Adam, put you into the new Adam, and made you a son of God. You see, he not only paid your debt, he adopted you. He said, son, you owe $125,000. I'm going to pay the debt. Nothing. I'm going to adopt you. And I'm going to make you head of the company. You're a rich man now. See? So Jesus didn't only pay for our sins, he placed us in the family. Now that's grace up on top of grace there. That's abounding grace, which he's going to talk about a little later on. So he died for our sin, but he was raised again to justify us and place us in the family of God and impute to us not only his death, but his life also. So we receive his title 
his name, his riches, his wealth, his peace, his life, his love, and his favor, and uh, home in heaven. So he makes us sons and daughters of God as well. Delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. We'll take up in chapter 5 next week. 5 is going to be a marvelous chapter uh, as well. And then 6, 7, and 8. We'll stop there.